OTB Sports Rugby. Everyone in the world thinks Ireland should win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you pick the combined side, who'd get in from Wales? Jeez, not no one. I don't think. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Welcome along to the Sunday Papers here on Off the Ball. Plenty to look at from the last 24 hours or so of sports writing. Uh, Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer from the Irish Daily Star is with me and Gavin Cooney from the 42.ie. Let's have a look at some of the back pages and the stories that have been dominating. Uh, Katie Taylor, understandably across quite a few of the papers today, announced last night by Eddie Hearn that Dublin will be the venue on May the 20th. But quite a few of the papers running with different stories around Katie Taylor today, including in the Sunday Times where the possibility of Cork GA hosting the fight, a late bid was made for Porky Cueve to be the venue when Crow Park was deemed to be too expensive for May the 20th in the eyes of Eddie Hearn. Uh, we'll talk about the rest of the stories around Hearn, the potential of Conor McGregor now stepping in uh, with his company Proper 12 to fund the what apparently is the stumbling block at the moment of security for the fight and where the fight will be when May the 20th rocks around. An awful lot about the Six Nations, of course, on the opening Saturday. Very exciting with Scotland's win at Twickenham, but good start. But it's France up next is the line that the Sunday Times have gone with a picture of Josh van der Fleer. Many puns in the papers today, off to a Fleer as well after his bonus point try. And van der Merwe stars as Scotland beat England 29-23. Third successive year that Scotland have beaten England for the Calcutta Cup. The Irish Independent has gone with We Have Liftoff in their Sunday edition, which is James Lowe's uh, breakaway try in Cardiff. Farrell's men weather well storm to secure a bonus point win in Cardiff. First time that Ireland have won at the Principality in the Championship in some 10 years. It is Duhan van der Merwe and his two one individual tries on the back of the Observer Sport today as Scotland got a bit of a smash and grab in the end as the Steve Bortwick era began with a 29-23 defeat. Also Chelsea featuring across quite a few of the newspapers today on the back of their £600 million of spending, the biggest spenders in Europe uh, by quite a distance. Jonathan Wilson uh, wondering if Chelsea's gamble on young guns is a shot in the dark by their US owners. In the Business Post magazine today, uh, there's been plenty of question marks during the week about the amount of access that Netflix have been getting, uh, but will Netflix's documentary into the Six Nations uh, prove to be an important financial shot in the arm for the unions? Uh, it's a six-figure fum, sum that each union is going to get, uh, but is that worth it for the access that they're going to have to give up over the next couple of months? And a flick through the red tops then, we've got Goodison Tark, which is James Tarkovsky after his winner against Arsenal, which opens the door for Man City to potentially cut the top uh, gap at the top of the Premier League back to two points later today. And Madchester, the Glazers' final insult is that they're going to dump huge costs in terms of debts onto the potential new owners of Manchester United. Uh, that process is ongoing at the moment as the Glazers look for investment into the club. Fears Johnny at the back of the Sunday sport. That was Johnny Sexton saying after his long layoff from his broken cheekbone at Christmas, he was incredibly nervous about the game yesterday. And we've got plenty of talk about Jurgen Klopp uh, saying that Liverpool's performance was horrible in their defeat against Wolves. Klopp, I'm not a cop-out at the back of the Sunday world. Uh, Jurgen Klopp uh, making it very clear that he won't be quitting Liverpool uh, despite their poor form sitting 10th in the table at the moment John Brennan also writing with Ireland looking good for the slam Tara very much is also James Tarkovsky and a different sale around Manchester United being hinted at in the people today which is ruthless Eric Ten Hag is planning a clear out at Old Trafford among the players who could be leaving Scott McTominay Donny van de Beek 
Anthony Martial and Harry Maguire. That story is an exclusive by Steve Bates about the potential sellout there. And also in the Business Post, Matt Cooper has been writing about Chelsea needing Champions League money as part of their model after their big spending this January. Kieran and Gavin, how are we getting on, lads? Good, good. Cheers. It's one of those days, Kieran, where we're probably looking at a lot of writing that's in the live sphere, on the back particularly of the rugby from yesterday, a lot of Premier League previews of Spurs and Man City, and we'll talk about maybe the stories around Harry Kane a little bit later. Uh, But that's been the focus. I think we might kick off with Katie Taylor, though, because Mm. some of the uh, most meaty pieces that are in the newspapers today around Katie Taylor and the entire back and forth that's happened this week. Yeah, well, I found it a very interesting story, Um, because there's so much spin involved and there's so much, uh, you know, often it comes down to who you believe on what's been said around it. It's interesting now, she was due to do, a pre- um, Mick Foley mentioned that she'd be doing a press conference in Dublin on Wednesday. And I got and I got wind that this was happening a while ago, but I was told on Friday night it's not happening now. That Eddie Hearn and Brian Peters, Kitty Taylor, were supposed to come to Dublin. Now they're just going to issue a press release tomorrow around the fight. And I wonder if that related to all that went on last week, that when, you know, it becomes one of the main stories in the 6-1 news when the live line lunatics jump on top of it, when um, when it's brought up on the floor of the doll, when it becomes, a, a, you know, uh, and Eddie Hearn, you know, he dealt with, like, he, he talked last week, he talked to B- Steve Bonds to the BBC, he talked to Ariel Helwani, who's, uh, who'd be very prominent in the US, but it's predominantly an MMA fighter, and he, uh, or an, NA, an MMA journalist, sorry. And he talked to... Uh, a boxing, uh, one of the many boxing YouTube sites, which is the one that initially had the line that it was uh, three times the cost. And uh, like initially, I thought um, this is very vague. You know, Eddie Hearn a week earlier said it was twice the cost. Now he's going to three times. And, you know, I've, I've always thought there's no merit in interviewing a boxing promoter because there's a famous line for Bob Aaron, probably the, the most along with Don King, the most famous boxing promoter. And he said uh, once it was put up to him that he changed his mind or he's given a complete opposite view to what he said before. And he said, well, yesterday I was lying. Today I'm telling the truth. But that's often the way boxing, you don't know what to believe because people are spinning stuff all the time. And it was great timing. Like it's brought up here that the GA's annual report would be launched because we rarely hear from, say, Tom Ryan. And Tom Ryan didn't talk about this as, as things turned out. Or Peter McKenna. And Peter McKenna has talked to... Uh, what was refreshing about Peter McKenna was he gave actual numbers mm. in terms of what the... the He said, Crow Park is more expensive, but it's not substantially more. It's a security. He didn't go into the security thing. The direct rent, I think, was 400,000 versus 250, which was... Uh, yeah, yeah, or 200... Was it 250 or 280 sterling? But when you add in the sterling difference, it's it's, it's, sign- it's, it's different, but it's, but it's a security and insurance... Actually, I don't like giving him any credit for this, but Eddie Hearn, is, Mick, Mick Foley points this out in the Sunday Times, he isn't a million miles away when you factor in the security and, and insurance. People wouldn't believe how much that costs in Dublin. And, you know, even people, uh, boxing promoters who put on smaller show, there have been some, you know, there's been about, I think, 16, 17, 18 small hall shows since the Regency. You know, p- people saying that there's been no professional boxing in Ireland to, uh, south of the borders in the regions. It's not true. There've been small hall shows. There've been no yeah. bigger shows. But a lot of those shows, you know, it was very hard to get them over the line because the insurance and security costs. And there were others that were planned that didn't happen because of insurance and security costs. 
and the BUI fees as well, which is significant. Boxing Union of Ireland, which are which are seem to be way over what they should be compared to other other countries and other jurisdictions. But you cannot get away from the fact that the security and insurance costs are so high because of what happened to the Regency and what has happened at other boxing venues. Even if they're nothing to do with boxing, there was shootings out there, said the stadium, there was a man shot dead in Bray Boxing Club. There was a gym uh, where MTK boxers were being trained. There was firebombed. And there was a shooting at a boxing way in the Regency where a man was murdered. And there's been a very high profile trial around that. So that has all added to the very difficult position boxing is in now. And I think a lot of things came together. I think they got jittery, Eddie Heron's people, because the one thing, I actually think Katie Taylor v. Surround and Crow Park might sell out because I think it'd become such a big event. But I don't know. And the fact is, nobody knows. Because the thing is, there's never been any event like this before. South of the border, there have been very few big boxing events. You know, Steve Collins in Cork, and, you know, Cork has brought up in Parkerkeeve and Mill Street were big crowds. Bernard Dunn, you know, his biggest fights were uh, in, the three the, in what the, was the, the what, what Point Depot, whatever it was called at the time, the Three Arena, which is 9,000, 9,000 people. So there's never been anything of this scale. Like even Croke Park or Alley in, in, in back in the day. Which is far from Zellert. Yeah, it was far from Zellert. There was 15,000 there apparently. And I think, uh, well, I think they say there was around 30,000 because so many jumped over the wall. Like it was just bedlam. And, but it was different then. Like people didn't travel to Dublin as much for events then. You know, it would have been very different. There wasn't the same kind of buzz. Like, like, like there's things that have happened the last few years that make me think Katie could t- sell out. Like, Leinster rugby team can sell out the Aviva now. I used to go to Leinster rugby games, even when the Heineken Cup started with 1,500 people. So hype and success, and there's nobody been more successful than Taylor the, uh, than Katie Taylor that people want to jump on. Well, presumably you market this one right as well, though. You say yeah. this is the once-in-a-lifetime lifetime fight. This is yeah, Katie Taylor it, coming yeah. to Dublin. She's coming towards the end of her career. She's defending yeah, all her yeah, world yeah, titles. Because I, I did talk to a lot of people who have no interest in boxing, and this is where people go wrong. I've seen a lot of their anal- analysis saying, you know, that there isn't that interest in boxing. When you see the National Amateur Championships, there's no sponsor and can't get a TV, uh, a TV partner. Um, you know that the, uh, so, so you can you can make can make that argument, but the thing is, Katie Taylor isn't popular because she's a boxer. She's she she resonates with people who have no interest in boxing. You know, which is very strange. Are those people, though, Karen, who are going to pay a premium potentially if these tickets are expensive at say seventy or eighty euro to go to go on a Saturday night to watch boxing? Yeah, well, that's key now because that's what it was kind of con- going to come to. Because of various dates, right, around other matchroom bills, around TV or TV broadcast availability, etc., uh, May 20th was the date they really wanted. And around when, you know, Serrano's people would be happy, etc., around Katie Taylor. So there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of flexibility around that date. That is the same date as the Heineken Cup final in Dublin, right? As things stand, because uh, the hotel situation, you know, housing refugees and various things, there aren't, there aren't a huge amount of hotel beds in Dublin. If you look at that night, there are, there's not that many hotel beds available and the average price is between four and 500 a night. Because at the time boxing is on, if you're coming from outside Dublin, particularly if you're coming uh, from outside the Pale, say outside of Leinster, more than likely you'll have to have an overnight stay. So if you're factoring in 400 euro, Minimum probably for a hotel room, probably average hundred euro tickets. 
no have, public transport options to yeah, get out if that's the way you're yeah, looking Yeah, transport, you know, in terms of diesel or public transport or taxis and eating and drinking, you're not going to be a huge amount of change out of a thousand euro, you know, which is a good a family holiday for a package holiday for a lot of people. So I think that give people, uh, I, I honestly think that's probably the main reason why we've gone from Talker Group Park to three arena. I think it probably would still might well have sold out, but I think they were jittery around to the promoters. Uh, there's plenty of interviews Eddie Hor Eddie Hearn has given where he talks of his love for the Tory party, which is no surprise. He's an uber capitalist. There's never been a socialist boxing promoter. They're in it to make money and make big money. So this is where we are. I liked it because yeah. I mean it's so I mean it's so hard to get your head around this story because like you say there's so much spin out there. Uh, I did like how Mick Foley sums it up at the opening of his piece. When it comes to piecing together the jagged jigsaw of testimonies from every party vested in bringing Casey Taylor to Croke Park last week, it's clear that no one was outrageously bending the facts beyond breaking point, but all of them are peddling a distinct version of their own truth. Everyone would liked, would have liked Taylor fighting in Croke Park. The strength of that conviction varied between them all for different reasons. And I think that's ultimately what this whole thing comes down to, that there's not enough will on behalf of all the parties to make this happen. And I think Kieran has explained very clearly there why perhaps it's not there from her insight, that the money, this thing might not sell out. Um, I kind of, you know, it, now it's another one of those, you know, I mean, I think we would all agree that Taylor, it would be great for Taylor to look back at this career, like arguably the best sporting Irish sporting career ever, to say that she had an iconic night at Croke Park. It would be remarkably flat, Gav, if this ended up in the three arena, I think. I mean, well, it's not a great venue for boxing because it's not in the round. Mm. That's a that's a big problem with it. Like yeah. it's 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 like if you go to a gig, it's against a wall. The ring would be against the wall, so everybody's facing it. So if you're up in the gods, your view would be pretty terrible. But the thing is, I've been at, I was at Katie Taylor in Wembley in Cardiff, and and at, at Wembley I was there when she won her first world title, and it was when Anthony Joshua beat Vladimir Klitschko. And Wembley looks brilliant on TV for boxing. If you're there, it's rubbish. It's absolute mm. rubbish. You, you don't see anything. You end up watching the big you're screen. You're watching the screen, so you might yeah. be. You might as well be at home. So as an occasion, and like now I know Katie Taylor's people were very keen for this, in that for boxing, she would have been on far earlier than normal because they wanted families and kids to be able to go. Like it was about making it a big celebration of one of the only true icons of Irish sport. Like there's been no, very few people you could actually call an icon. But it, it's interesting, like her big year outside of being a profession was 2012. I went to Katie Taylor's first fight that year, which was in the Royal Ballroom in Bray. And uh, to, there was you didn't buy tickets beforehand. There was a guy at the door with a biscuit tin and you dropped your money into the biscuit tin. And can you go from filling biscuit tins to filling the, bis the biggest stadium in Ireland? And that's a big question. By the end of that year, she was the most Googled person in Ireland that year. You know, but there's so many people who Google her and, you know, are big into her and have never seen her fight. Like mm. she's fought even as an amateur. She didn't fight here that often. You know, uh, she did a round uh, before the Olympics, you know, and that's around the time, you know, she won for her fourth world title around that. So she was she, still she, she was, walked to a lot of her national titles. Though. Yeah. She yeah, yeah. Boxing the elite. yeah but, but she fought in the national stadium. She fought in Cavan. She fought in Dun. I was I was at one of the Dungarvan Sports Centre. There were a lot of empty seats. And she was still a big deal then. But I think it is different now, though, that this has... Like, do you remember when Crow Park first opened? There was... there was um, The first league game of the year was Dublin against Tyrone. And they sold it out because they hyped the hell out of it. Mm. 
like hype works and the one thing Eddie Heron you have to give him credit for he's a hype merchant he can sell tickets like he sold tickets for Joshua Klitschko in 20 minutes and the in another 20 minutes at 100,000 on the waiting list on top of that so I think it might well have sold the tickets but I think there was a bit of jitters over it that they mightn't and but whether would there ever be clarity in that remains to be seen. Like it's, it doesn't bode well that this press conference in Dublin has been cancelled because I think they would have been probably a bit wary of more awkward questions mm. than they got um, from Ariel Helwani or the YouTubers or from Steve Bunce. Mm. I did wonder as well, Gavin, when the week was playing out, whether this was Eddie Hearn deliberately taking a position to maybe try and leverage the situation, either for the GA to drop. Well, I think he wanted a live. Li- I think he wanted the live line cudgels raising raising at the GA. I mean, I have to say, I, w- I would love to have been a fly in the wall and the GA press office this week after all the Kilmacud Glen stuff to hear Ariel Helwani going on about and these GA lads, they they won't let you find Croke Park. What's going on there? What's wrong with them? Um, so I do think maybe look. My, I, I'm speculating, it's only my opinion, I think maybe Hearn coming out and talking about three times the price, which in fairness is probably accurate when all the costs are bundled together, uh, to, to put it in, the, in Croke Park's court, so to speak, was perhaps calculated for everyone to, uh, to you know, for, for the like Gravel Association, um, uh, and for all that kind of outrage to spill online and on the airwaves. And as it turns out, A, it seems the country has exhausted their annoyance, their annual annoyance reserves of the GA over Kilmacud and Glen. Uh, and B, and there's just not as many people... It's, it's interesting to see how it all plays out. And the Sunday papers is always a good way of summing, of um, seeing how that PR play on Hearn's part, if it was indeed that, played out. And you'd have to say not that well. There's a lot of pieces here on basically on the GA side. Eamon Sweeney most forcefully, Shane McGrath the mail as well. Yeah. yeah, just a quick one, though, because a lot has been made as well. You know, a few people have brought up that there should be government pressure and that, uh, you know, Jack Cham- Chambers, when, as Minister of Sport, was more active on this than Thomas Byrne has been. But there's a counter argument, and, and, and this is made in some of the pieces, that this should be nothing to do with the government, you know, that it's, you know, why, why should a government have anything to do with something that's a commercial enterprise and ultimately is about enriching um, uh, the fighters, the promoters, the managers, and, the, you know, does own the broadcasting company. But it is interesting, though, when you look at it, the government have subsidised other sporting events. College it's football. College the football, mind, the yeah. Americans, uh, the US woman, uh, sorry, the Irish woman's... Uh, the Irish Open in women's golf is another example. There's a few other examples. So they have intervened at different times in the past over things that, they, uh, you know, and you could argue uh, that this could, be, you know, this, uh, Katie Taylor and Crow Park could be a tourism benefit as well. Like, because you would have people travelling. It wouldn't just be Irish people. There, there would be an interest say, from the UK in particular because it would be built up as such a big deal as one as definitely the biggest women's fight of all time and as one of the biggest fights of, 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 uh, uh, in boxing across the board in a long time because you have to look at the, the you know the end of year awards last year you know the the main bibles of of the sport like ring this is fight of the year uh, ESPN said that they were saying that, the, that uh, Taylor v Serrano last year was fight of the year and the moment of the year and the biggest occasion of the year so there would be interest from outside so that it's it's interesting now. There's a uh, Dazone and uh, Eddie Hearn's people sent out a promo this this morning after it was announced. You know, publicising the fight, and it's got May twentieth Dublin. It's got no venue on it. 
No, which makes me think things might still be up in the air. I do wonder that too. When the coverage Gavin was out last night, they deliberately said just Dublin just and Dublin. kept on saying just yeah. Dublin. Yeah, I, I just see on that point. I think the idea that our that state money should go into subsidising and making sure that Eddie Hearn meets the profit margins is rubbish. I really don't think there should be any state money. I think Thomas Byrne was actually quite good in this in the doll during the week as well where he made the point that they have supported other events and college football came up as part of this discussion mm. and he was saying there is uh, definitely has to be a cost analysis around this where the state have to say well we can guarantee this amount of people are going to come from Nebraska or from Illinois to go and watch the college football mm. so it's going to bring in this many tourists it's much harder when the government didn't have firm figures on how much Crow Park would potentially cost yeah and then there is an also they did raise the issue as well that you know, I did like the line, Dublin tourism is full <laughs> because yeah, the Heineken Champions Cup final is on the same day. Yeah, but that's what you come down to. Like, if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis and say, you know, it will bring in 10,000 visitors, where are they going to stay? Mm. Now, when, when there's hardly, there are not that many hotel beds available and those that are available are, are, at, are at a pretty hefty price as things stand. And if Taylor was confirmed from Crow Park, they probably spiked the price because that's the way these mm. things work. So. Mm. so I think that, I think Money in the Department of Sport should be allocated to promoting participation in that sport rather than subsidising major events to allow money go into, you know, either profiteering the boxing. Yeah. But, no, but that, that's not that what governments a, want to do. It would no. be a much better use of state money to do that than, you know, as I say, subsidise um, Eddie Hearn's profit margins and, and uh, benefit profiteering hotels. Yeah. Last point in this one, Kieran, that I can think of, they keep on bringing up September and even Peter McKenna said, hey, we'd love to have Katie Taylor a bit later in the year if it's possible. Mm. I just wonder, does that mean that Serrano nearly needs to win the second phase yeah. if there's yeah. going to be a third? Well, there's not going to be a... a, a, a generally, if, if there are, are trilogies in boxing, it's because there's been 1-1 one, one up to then. It's unusual to have a 2-0 and then they go a third time. Uh, personally, I would I would hope Taylor Serrano was Katie Taylor's last fight. Mm. No, that's been, I've been perfectly honest. I, I, you know... A bit wary saying that because, like, all her life she's had men telling her what she can't do or what, or what she should do or what she cannot do. But I think if she's 37 in July and she's boxing a long time and get out when you're in a, a, you know, in good enough fettle because it's a dangerous game. Which is why I think Crow Park could have been the fairy tale because yeah, this yeah. could have been the homecoming, Absolutely. leaving with your unified titles as a two weight world champion, yeah. as an Olympic champion. And the thing is, like, if, if she, but she, I don't think she th- thinks that way at all. I think she thinks, you know, she ta- there's talk of other fights she wants. Um, because she's such a big deal, she could have picked an easy fight for a homecoming mm. and there would still have been a hype and a, and a big crowd around it. But she's picked the toughest fight you could pick for it. So, Right, mm. let's have a look then. at. I'm going to skip forward here, lads, to the Sunday Independent from today. And I'm going to go to page 12 because it's a very different take from Tommy Conlon uh, to what was a saga over the last couple of weeks since the end of the All-Ireland Club football final. Our chemical Crokes won by two points. I think people are probably quite familiar with the story now. Uh, But Crokes had 16 active players on the pitch because Darren Mullen hadn't left the pitch after being signalled that he was going to be subbed. Technically... Uh, They had 17 on the pitch, but Paul Mannion was looking backwards at the time of the 45 and wasn't an active player. It's all played out that Glenn had to put in an appeal. That appeal has now been withdrawn at the stage beyond the control committee of the GA who had advised a replay would take place and Chemical Crooks will be keeping the American Cup. Tommy Conlon has opened his piece today on page 12 of the Sunday Independent by saying, having done their best to take the good out of it for the winners, the vanquish scuttled away from the mess that they've created when the penny dropped it, they were starting to look like poor losers. So Gavin, oh. in this spin war, 
had it got to a point on Friday that Glenn were starting to look like the bad guys in the saga or what do you think of Tommy's taker? Uh, Tommy is one of my favourite sports writers one of my favourite pieces of the week usually um, sorry I did enjoy this as well but I disagree with it I think that to portray um, to portray Glenn as the bad guys is a little bit unfair to be quite honest Glenn seemed to have committed that awful Irish sin of wanting to be seen to be successful uh, in taking this appeal the issue is that we're two weeks on. <laughs> we're two weeks on from this bloody match. Uh, and the fact that, that we're still reading pieces about it, allocating blame um, uh, to either party, shows that the issue is not with either of the teams involved, but it is with the process by which uh, the thing was appealed. Th this has been allowed to rumble on. I know the GA have defended it, and by saying that this is the, this is the process, the process needs to change. Mm. It's a joke. You know? I mean, the fact that this is, this is still going on, and I, I, the... Um, um, Tommy says that Malachi O'Rourke uh, spoke uh, was right afterwards to say that we, uh, it was only in his personal opinion that we wouldn't take an appeal to this uh, and he says more, but more broadly there is a moral picture because as always there is a difference between what is legal and what is just there are legal rights and wrongs and then there is sporting right and wrong and there is fair and unfair well that can be interpreted either way you know I mean Darren Mullen was let's Darren Mullen was on the goal line maybe that that was unfair in the eyes of Glenn um, so I think uh, yeah, if I was Glenn, if I was associated with Watty Grahams, uh, I would, uh, I wouldn't be too thrilled reading this piece. I think that they were they play the hands that were dealt to them by um, a, a, a disciplinary process that is clearly not fit for, not fit for purpose. I would think as well, Gavin, when it comes to this, there was probably split opinion within Glenn itself over the last two weeks. Mm. They took the full length of time really before they decided to put in the initial appeal against the rule breach, which is the sixteen players on the pitch. That would indicate to me that they probably had to have quite a few conversations, particularly on the Monday before that appeal went in. And I'm sure they've been having discussions over the last week when it was becoming very clear behind the scenes that there was no appetite at all within Kilmacook Crokes to play a replay. And then Glenn had to make that decision on Friday to, as they say, withdraw from the process because they felt that a, an appeal was unlikely, uh, sorry, a replay was unlikely to actually happen. Mm. So to me, that sounds like a club that were pondering about this and not a club who were just trying to take away from Kilmacook's success. Yeah, I think so. Um as regards taking away from Kilmacud's success, I don't know. I think so. Effectively, what they've withdrawn from the appeal because they don't think they'll win. Is that? I think they've uh, withdrawn from because they don't think that the replay will actually happen. Yeah, well, fair enough. And in fairness, that was the general. Again, we're in kind of GA Flan O'Brien territory when <laughs> I mean the GA ordered a replay and the various uh, kind of the consensus in the newspapers and on the airwaves was ah there'll be a replay, but ah that won't be played. So maybe obviously th that that's the case. I just find it unbelievable that it went on like this. I thought that. Uh, as I said, Glenn were put in a pretty invidious position, um, and it's and it's a, it was a total mess. Um, do I? F I mean, Tommy's point that Kilmacud's, you know, with the, was the win tarnished a little bit for Kilmacud that they didn't get to enjoy the celebrations. I don't know. I mean, they still made the error in leaving in leaving seventeen players on the field and sixteen active players on the field. So you know, they did break a rule as well. Um, but I think to. Uh, to heap, uh, to heap criticism upon Glenn, I don't think that's that's very fair. Uh, I think it shows um, there's there's a major conflict will between like a lot of us would would have grown up in the GA to very varying degrees, and we kind of become so used to the GA way of doing things that we forget often that it's ludicrous. That a lot of people, the way the GA operates is is ridiculous and wouldn't be accepted in any other sport. And it sometimes needs outsiders to comment on it. And, you know, I have heard some outside comment. Uh, I think like Ken Early and Second Cabs have become quite funny about it. Like, uh, who's coming from back? Like, this would be 
you know, at a club level, you know, it's, it's an All-Ireland final. It's the biggest game of the year. The biggest game of the year in any sport and, and, and any other sports, for this to happen, you know, we think there's been a big reaction to that. Like, it would be all over Sky Sports News for two, two, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And, you know, I, I, because I have this little, you know, this thing of having grown up in the GA, my gut reaction was like Tommy Conlon's. It was like Maliki O'Rourke. It's wrong, but should we get on with it? You mm. know, should they probably have won it anyway? Uh, but like, uh, but really, it shouldn't be acceptable. And I, th- I honestly think Glenn didn't want to appeal. I think Glenn were kind of. I think in a way they were kind of, you know, Joe Brawley went big time in this, and you know, highlight a lot of things, and you know, they were kind of. This was kept being put to Glenn. You have to stand up for the integrity of the game, you know, and if you accept this. Uh, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. Your children will be next. Be twenty aside and under ten. But, but the uh, like I've seen. But I've seen Joe uh, tweet about this and say, "No rules. The rules are the rules." But you read Joe's column today, and he's talking uh, in very romantic terms about a, uh, a former manager, Derry John Brennan, and when he was managing against him at a club game, he came on to him and punched him. And, and realistically, John Brennan should have been banned for at least a year for doing that. But Joe was romanticised that. So there's rules. You know, you can't be you can be selective. But there's rules are rules thing. I think, uh, you know, everybody got the, the same word out of Kilmacott that they weren't going to replay the game. So Glenn were in hiding to nothing. I think they made a stand knowing that nothing would change. And I think that uh, I think I have a feeling it was part of the plan all along to withdraw their appeal. But that's my speculation. So you think Glenn appealed to make a to case make a of point, it and then yeah. to never really feel it was yeah, part of the Yeah, so even to force the hand so somebody goes to Congress and puts in a motion to make sure something like this can never happen again, just to make a stand for the integrity of the game. Because it does not help the integrity of Gaelic football if you can have 17 players on the pitch. I know one isn't active, but he's still 17. And... You know, it's so simple. Uh, you know, it's done in other sports that a sub can't go on until you leave the field. It's not that complicated to make sure that's the case. Mm. Yeah, I think the officials at the time probably got caught up in the moment, which was a couple of minutes into injury time in an All-Ireland final and didn't slow it down to take a replay of the 45, as happened with Robbie Henley with Mayo against Dublin a yeah, couple yeah. years ago, where yeah. there was a similar situation where there was an extra player on the pitch at the time. So realistically, the officials have dropped the ball a little bit on the day as well. Yeah, I think it may well formalise what happens with subs from now on. Yeah, yeah ah, I think, that, I think it has down. to, because I think if it happened again, imagine how embarrassing. Like This has been hugely embarrassing for the GA anyway. And it also highlights something that should also be brought to Congress that it shouldn't be up to clubs to object. Mm. Like this was on the GA and the GA authorities and how they run the games. Glenn would have been embarrassed knowing they lost the game and no matter if they were 14 or 17 they'll probably have lost it. Like it didn't make any difference in the end of the day. So uh, the GA should sort that loophole out. You shouldn't club, either club shouldn't be put in that very uh, awkward position. Um, I think probably Kilmacud's backs are up as well because there's a lot of 
I think it's yeah. Tommy makes a good point about this. Mm. Like Kilmacud do brilliant work. Yeah. Like they're in an area that was never seen as a GA area and is such a stronghold now, but they're hammered, you know, because they have a private hospital, say, as a sponsor, and that they're seen as the monies and the elite, and then they get Shane Walsh and a transfer. But the vast, uh, you know, you go through their squad. I think the fewer imports than any big Dublin club. And also, we can romanticise things too too much with other clubs. Like Glen are a small club in, G- in Derry. Maliki works from Fermanagh and he lives in Tyrone. OK, you know, so why is it OK to have an outside manager but not an outside player or yeah. a player come from outside? And Tommy does add, and this I think, I think maybe this was part of the argument of the last couple of weeks, um, was the class divide, I'm quoting now, class divide became part of the agenda too after over the last week and a half a big urban powerhouse picking on the noble virtuous gales of a small outpost in rural Derry. Now I do think that, I think that's a good point. I think that, that definitely did feed into some of the outrage. I think it was some of the narrative. I think Joe Brawley made that explicitly when he compared the sponsor even being the local shop in Mara were sponsoring Glen and it was the Beacon Hospital who were sponsoring mm. Kimmel Crokes. There was this feeling that it was almost the empire up against the little guy and mm. this was a chance maybe to hold the empire to task. And I didn't like, look, to be honest, I didn't like some of the narrative picking this idea that was being ascribed to the fact that Chemical Crokes had deliberately cheated or that was a deliberate process to try and keep the 16th player on the pitch. I generally don't think that's what happened on the day, but that was some of the narrative afterwards. Mm. And Chemical Crokes took a lot of pelters. I would agree with you, as you said earlier, about you know, does it take away from Kilmacook Crook's success? The reality is that when they were celebrating bringing the American Cup back to their club on the Sunday, this was all going on in the background and probably the same for the couple of days afterwards. And I'm sure for quite a few of their players, they're probably thinking, how much can we celebrate this? Or is there that possibility an mm. appeal could happen later this week and maybe we're having to play a replay next week? Well, then, no, no, but knowing the pace at which this disciplinary process moves, they could have the mother of all benders and be fine. I don't know what I loved as well about the, uh, the slow process too is that everyone was accepting of the fact that, you know, Shane walks in Dubai for a couple of weeks and there's a wedding on in Glen next week. So mm. there's no way it could be played before the middle of March. There was almost that feeling that um, the slow process of the law was actually going to be an advantage to both clubs yeah. if a replay was ever potentially But like just happen. on what you were saying you don't think there is intent in what everyone called Kimiko did I don't know if there was or not but you can't bring that into any judgement like no. you know I mean they they had too many players on the pitch they broke the rule I don't I think I, I think everyone was in favour of there being a disciplinary process looking at how they broke the rule um, and the potential consequences of it but the fact that it's taken nearly two weeks to get a resolution and that Glenn had to be the protagonist in bringing the appeal um, that's what needs to change Yeah I suppose for anyone wondering about the GA and why it has to be a club, a unit is what I was told when I queried this with the GA mm. last week, is that they don't want to get into a position where the GA might have to review controversial incidents on a week-by-week basis or almost a game-by-game basis. They want it to be a point that, uh, whether it be a referee, bring something up to their attention, or a unit, in this case the club, would bring it to their attention, and then the disciplinary process would kick in. As opposed to what could potentially happen is somebody identifies something like on the day where many people saw the TG Carra coverage and went, wait a minute, with that over the goal shot, I can see 16 players, possibly 17 on the pitch. The next thing they're having to investigate it. But you could argue back and forth, should there be an independent body? Like, I think if this happened in another sport, genuinely, if this happened in a rugby or in a football match, I think it would have been looked into anyway. I think the FEI or the RFU would have kicked into gear. You've just rem- you just made me think of something, Will. It's probably TG Carr's fault, ultimately. If they didn't have because that over-the-goal yeah, shot, we'd yeah, never know. Because a lot, of, a lot of broadcasters don't use that one. Nobody would have noticed. <laughs> if it was Marty Morris, he commentated, and it was an on-RT, the cameras would be a different place. Nobody would have known. Here we go. Bandy over TG the... TG uh, Carr. 
over the goal shot you think it's exciting to see what's happening with puckouts and kickouts look at the problems it's caused um, if I can take you Gav to the back of the Sunday Independent if we can stick with the same paper for a moment I think this is a very interesting piece from Eamon Sweeney on his uh, back page Premier League's great con trick is the headline time is right for the European Super League now the argument that Eamon is making is that the Premier League is the Super League uh-huh. de facto and he uses the facts of the January transfer window quite well to illustrate this so over £800 million were spent by Premier League clubs which dwarfed every other league across Europe and 31 of the top 35 transfer fees, the majority of them by Chelsea, were all Premier League teams. And we saw Bournemouth, Nottingham Forest outbidding clubs across Europe. That just goes to show the huge money that's coming in from revenue. He makes the point about financial fair play being tied to the revenue of the clubs. So it's only going to become more of an issue with the Premier League clubs having more money to slosh around Mm. uh, the transfer fund. So therefore, he's making the point that all this English exceptionalism about the Super League rings a little bit hollow when they're so far ahead of the rest of the competition. There is the Super League and it's quite clear that this is now an international league that just happens to be in England. Eamon, Eamon makes the point that it's like the city of London. They'll, they'll um, accept whatever, however much money is going from wherever it's coming, no questions asked. Um, it's completely, uh, the Premier League is completely unmoored from the country in which it is set. Uh, as Eamon makes the point, like, I mean, Britain's crumbling economy. The average Slovenian family will be better off than the average British family next year. I mean, the IMF uh, forecasts that England or Britain's will be the only major economy to go into recession this year. And then two days later, Chelsea dropped 150 million euro on Enzo Fernandez, a guy who's played what maybe 50 senior games in his entire career. Um, he's completely right. Like, I mean, Javier Tebas of, of La Liga said the Premier League is a doped league, talking about finances. So, so completely. Um, he also makes the point that Sky's campaign against the European Super League as a closed shop, contrary to the democratic traditions of the game, looks a sick joke now because obviously, uh, as Eamon makes the point, that their motivations were commercial rather than ethical. So certainly, like, the, the Premier League is the Super League. And I don't really know. I mean, I mean, some... The top clubs in Europe will say, we can't compete with this, we need a Super League, but they're also doing that for their own motivations. There are some clubs lower down the food chain, Benfica among them, who are like, well, the Premier League are giving us hundreds of million euro, of euro every year for Enzo Fernandez and Darwin Nunes. They got 85 million euro for Darwin Nunes, who's no good. Uh, so maybe they would miss the, uh, miss the money uh, that's sloshing through the Premier League um, and that's being spent like it's going out of fashion. But um, I, I don't know for how much longer can the financial disparity between the Premier League and the rest of the world continue without there being a major, uh, a major revolution in how football is structured outside of England? Obviously, the Super League didn't work out primarily because the English clubs involved in it were met by the were a silly to get involved because they were going to kill their golden goose that gave them financial superiority over the rest of Europe, and also there was massive outcry from their supporters. So. Um, yeah, I think, and just when you mention UEFA's financial fair play, like UEFA will make the point that that was they that brought in a kind of a, a a principle of sustainability that definitely helped clubs right across Europe, and I think there's method to that. But in terms of reining in the spending of the top teams, it clearly has had no teeth and has had no impact, and to the point now where it's actually threatening has threatened UEFA's stranglehold on European football. I'm intrigued by the end goal and all this as well, Kieran, because ultimately Real Madrid and Barcelona have got a fan model at the moment. Uh, the model in Germany is different, uh, which Bayern Munich are part of that as well, which is very much tied in around uh, members of the club and never going over the 50% threshold if they're selling to minority stakeholders. So therefore, three of the European super clubs are very unlikely to take a Premier League model particularly like say Newcastle's new owners or Chelsea's new owners coming in and buying with a huge amount of money and then giving a huge cash injection. That's why I think 
themselves and Juventus have stayed in the process to try and be part of the European Super League and took it to court <coughs> this week as well. But I just wonder what happens to these European Super teams at the end of this if you see sides within the Premier League galloping ahead of them. Even when we looked at the Deloitte Money League a few weeks ago, yeah. you had very average Premier League clubs bringing in more money than some of the biggest clubs across Europe. Yeah, and it's not just those. Like, what happens to even Liverpool? Uh, you know, if they, unless they get uh, probably uh, owners that are morally dubious, to put it mildly, uh, you know, unless they, they go down that route... Uh, you know, you can say they have spent quite a lot of money in the last two uh, year or so on attacking players that they didn't really need and didn't strengthen where they, where they would go. But you, then you look at, there's no way Liverpool could do what Chelsea did last month. Like what Chelsea did is insane and is impossible to explain away. But that's the Premier League way. You know, it's it's it's, it's just a ludicrous way. Like it just shows up. You know, the lack of regulation, the whole joke that is financial fair play. And it, I'm glad Eamon Sweeney highlighted this. Like I read an article, yes, it was either New Statesman or Financial Times, I can't remember, but it was comparing Britain now to the 70s. And the 70s is always just as an economy and as a society and as a country. And this 1970 is always seen as an, an uh, you know, a low point in that there were so many strikes. There was uncollected uh, rubbish on the streets. There were power cuts all the time. There was a three day week. But it's pointing out that in many, many ways, and it, it, there's a metric, it went through all things like average wage, so many different things. Things are far worse off now. Like the, even uh, the guy went to London in January 94 and uh, my first salary was 25,000 sterling a year in the newspaper. And if you started in that same sterling uh, newspaper now, which is nearly 30 years on, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get twenty five thousand in a city, which is you know, and that's thirty years on. You yeah. know, so and that's across the board. Like, so you have this situation where players, uh, where there's clubs that will give a player uh, half a million a week, but at the same time have food banks. They've set up their own food banks to help supporters. You know, you have this incredibly mad contradiction, and. Uh, it's there's no trickle, you know, trickle down eco- economics is a big myth anyway. But there's no trickle down, like as, as, as Eamon points out, of the 815 million sterling paid out in the transfer window, less than five percent went to English clubs outside the Premier League. So you're just going to have, like Newcastle United are going to be massive in the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years. Manchester City aren't going anywhere. Chelsea and Manchester United, Chelsea, given their spending now and the lack of re- controls on them, and you would expect Manchester United to get massive owners. I'm not sure about Liverpool, Liverpool because Liverpool's a complicated club because it's a complicated place. And there's very strong supporters groups who would... Uh, I think if they tried to get into bed with the Saudis or Qataris, it would be far more complicated than it would have been for Newcastle or Man City. That there would be a lot of protests, and it would have been, it would get, it could get ugly, you know, because they do cling on to, you know, it's a labour stronghold. They cling on to the Shankly ideal, their socialist club, even though it's it's obviously not in so many ways. But uh, I think there are, uh, uh, you know, the Premier League. I never, I always thought Super League is wrong. But Eamon Sweeney makes a very good argument for, like, what is going on in the Premier League is hard to defend. So why not go that away? I think, Gavin, I would still oppose the European Super League because I think while we can look at the Premier League as being kind of a closed shop away from the European giants, the Super League would only be another closed shop, Mm. which would then add another layer of 
making it almost impossible for other clubs to mm. compete. Those mm. clubs you mentioned, like Benfica, they would have no chance of catching up with the top. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and like what the Premier League learned from early on, from which the likes of Barcelona, Juventus, and Real Madrid will refuse to learn in kind of continuing to pursue uh, the the original idea of the European Super League that uh, lasted four days in the public realm uh, in 2021 is the idea of competitive balance. Competitive, like the contradiction is like I mean all these owners and clubs are greedy and are out just for themselves, but the 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 money keeps on flowing based off the fact that you might lose your next game. Like it's that jeopardy and it's that competitive balance that's important. And one of the reasons the Premier League is so massive is as Eamon Sweeney makes the point is international TV right. So what? The fact that it's in the English language massively helps in that. The fact that the stadiums look so good and the no and the the stands are so close to the pitch, all that stuff is all great for the Premier League when it comes to selling internationally. So you could say that they're kind of historic or um, traditional advantages that England has had. But what it also recognised was the fact that we need jeopardy here. We need the we need unpredictability, and it has it. Uh, in the sense that most other leagues in Europe don't. And the reason they had it was because they had a more equitable distribution of their broadcast revenues going back from the day it was founded you know so it was far they were always sold collectively and distributed some like according to okay according to league placing according to how many times you're on tv the the big clubs are kind of getting a higher cut now the international rights which is a mistake in my view uh, but there you go whereas Real Madrid and Barcelona weren't inter- interested in that at all they sold their own tv rights you know and like it's understandable like who's going to tune in to watch Real Madrid against Elche no one. They'll just tune in to see Real Madrid Barcelona. And now, like, I mean, because they're so hard up for cash, they're getting to these the confecting Clascos, like this Super Cup out in Saudi Arabia. And you potentially, know? I think they're going to have a Clasico in Mexico in the next couple yeah, of years. They'll just, you know, they'll just, they'll just kind of find more and more reasons to play this game because that's the only one that people are interested in. Where, in fairness for the Premier League, for all of its ills, it is competitive. Like, I mean, there is basically a game every weekend when, and around which hangs a in my opinion, anyway, a quite interesting narrative. You, know, there are, you can, you know, we get, uh, you know, teams in crisis, a crisis club every week. But there are, because if you miss out on the Champions League, like, that's, that's significant loss to your income. Like, there is something underpinning that. Whereas, you know, these, these other clubs in Europe who are advocating for their Super League and playing the poor mouth are there partly because of their own greed. Mm. Gavin, to pick up on that point about the Champions League money, Matt Cooper's been writing about it in the Business Post today that Chelsea have now invested hugely and mm. have put contracts out that are eight years long nine years long I think in the case of Mudrick because they need to try and get into a position where they meet financial fair play so they can spread the cost over the course of that contract they've invested hugely under Todd Bowley so far but the big question which is raised by many people today Rob Draper's writing about it in the mail uh, the back of the observer you've got Jonathan Wilson the question is have Chelsea spent the best part of a billion quid well <laughs> I mean, Todd Bowley reckons so. Uh, <laughs> on the like, who knows? Like, it's such a it's such a huge gamble. I, I don't. Th- I think the gamble side of it hasn't really been covered. Well, maybe it's being covered this week after everyone gets off the sugar rush of seeing all this money being spent uh, during the January transfer window. I've always been wondering, like, why is I don't get this. I don't understand why. I mean, surely, like, if this was a good idea, people would have done it before. But Todd Boliev and the people at Chelsea see themselves as smarter than the rest and disruptors and the smartest guys in the room. Now, there's plenty of cautionary tales from the last 10 years to say that the people 
and American disruptors who believe themselves to be the smartest guys in the room are usually not and are usually wrong. Uh, but the piece in the mail by Rob Draper is really good because I kind of finally get an insight into what the hell Chelsea are thinking. Uh, they reckon that this is great value uh, because um, something that I actually didn't realise until I read this piece is that the wages on these eight and a half year contracts are backloaded. So it's initially, uh, it's initially not so much. And then you're locking into saying Mudri paying Mudrick 350,000 a week in 2030, which you know, if wages keep inflating as they currently do, uh, will look like good value. Not and a problem unless Mudrick is not a good player in 2030. That, I mean, that's the big, that is the big risk, you know, and they're betting. And like I suppose all the all, all transfers in football are an educated bet. I don't know how much education, to be honest, has gone into some of Chelsea's, but nonetheless, they see it. But it also, be, I mean, sorry, and if Mudrick, uh, if wages keep going up as they have gone up in the last 20 years, when Todd Bowley was looking at spreadsheets, wondering as to whether getting, buying Chelsea was a good idea, then he has made a great gamble. But why is the assumption that it will continue to grow? Like this is like the whole Bowley at Chelsea thing is based off the based off the assumption that this thing has grown so much in twenty years it'll continue to. Why is that a guarantee? I mean, th what he says in here is that you know they'll look at you know Amazon or Apple TV might start buying right buying rights, but then buying streaming rights. But you know, will they pay? I don't. Maybe they'll give Chelsea more for their TV rights. But going back to my previous point. Chelsea are rich because they sold the Premier League rights collectively. Mm. They don't want to get to a stage where Madrid and Barcelona are selling your rights because people then will buy Chelsea's rights, but that might devalue the overall product as a whole and then it will stop. It will remove some of that competitive balance that makes the Premier League so interesting. So, I don't know. Betting on continuous and endless growth is a whopper risk. I don't think that uh, it's anything near a sure thing. And just my last point on this is like he's betting on continuous growth and making more money at a time when the American owners of Manchester United and Liverpool are getting out. Yeah. What does that tell you? Yeah, and at some stage as well, if you want continuous growth, you have to win things. <laughs> and Manchester City are going nowhere. Like Pep Guardiola is, no, is, uh, is not going to go anywhere for a while. And as long as he's there and the, the money they have will be there, then, you know, they're like you basically have to aim to get close to 100 points to have a chance to beat them. Like uh, Arsenal have 50 after 19. If things go to plan and both win their games up to their meeting on February 15th, a City win that day, put City just two points behind. Mm. And suddenly you go, nah, City will win the title. You know, so, and, and only for Liverpool managed uh, to sneak past them once. What, what, what would City be looking at now? Five in a row? Mm. It would yeah, be a five in a row. So it would be a similar situation do you have with PSG and Bayern Munich. Newcastle United will likely uh, be the main uh, threat because of their finances to City in the years to come. So Chelsea even to come third is a challenge. And that's not, you know, you don't know what might happen with Liverpool and United. It's interesting as well, like uh, I saw it up again during the week and you sometimes see these panels come around. I think it's the top 30 most expensive players of all time. And if you even if you've been kind to some of them, you'd probably only pick five of them that have really been success worked the moves worked out as successful. You go through each club's uh, record signings over the years. How many of them worked? You know, you mentioned Nunes currently Liverpool's one. Maybe he'll work in time. It doesn't look like at the moment. But you know, you go back to Andy Carroll was the the record signer. So, like so many record signers, just don't. No, they are educated, uh, and sometimes they're not that educated. <laughs> they're punts. Mm. Like you don't know. Like you've brought in how many players did Chelsea bring in in January? And then was it eight? 
seven yeah, or eight. I think it was seven or eight in the seven end. Seven or eight in the end. Like, and you're trying to integrate them into what's there already. And many players in the same positions. That's yeah, the thing that I found really crazy. Yeah. When the Hakim Ziyech transfer didn't happen, I'm thinking, amazingly, he then started in the game after he yeah. was effectively a fax machine away from being uh, sent along. Yeah, and like it's often be said you never buy a player on the back of a World Cup. But clearly they bought... Um, uh, Enzo Fernandez. Enzo, Enzo Fernandez on the back of the World Cup because it couldn't be in his club career because he's only played a couple of dozen games. But they make him one of the most expensive players of all time. And I can't see that working. It just seems insane. The other thing significant is uh, to try and compete with City. City of Guardiola. Chelsea of Graham Potter, who looks promising but has never won anything. Mm. Newcastle of Eddie Howe, the same. So, uh, you know, Klopp had a track record. You know, Klopp had won the Bundesliga and he'd taken to Borussia Dortmund to Champions League. Finland. He was able to get the better of Guardiola, but nobody else has proven they can. So, where do Liverpool sit now, Kieran? Just when I think about that, there's a lot about Klopp particularly in the tabloids today. He well, was uh, uh, a bit, a bit prickly, understandably. I think. Yeah, after the uh, uh, yeah. The, the James Pierce of the Athletic asked him a question, and he refused to take it. And he said, "You know what you wrote?" Mm. And I don't know what he wrote because he's he's one of the guys who would often be criticised, critical criticised for being far too, too positive about yeah, Liverpool yeah. and about Klopp and about the owners' FCG. Paul Rowe in the Sunday Times um, <clears throat> then asked the same question, so he did answer it. But uh, I think it's, it shows the short-term thinking now that you know that you have some people who've been talking about whether they should be sacked. Like surely you, you have to look at things in the round and what he's done so far. That you have to, th- you know, this is a disaster of a season. But uh, you have to, um, if you can't, if you can't be allowed one bad season. Uh, I, I don't know wh- where we are, where we are, and the other thing, like people, you know, people can like if you go through the squad when everyone's fit, there's a core of a very good squad. You clearly need strength in midfield. But I look at Manchester United. The big, the two big signings he made were Casemiro and Lissandro Martinez. They've made a massive impact. It's just two players have transformed that team. You, you don't need to bring in five, six, or, or twenty like Chelsea. Like if they did get Bellingham, which probably long shot, but there are there are talk, there is talk that Bellingham is very well is very keen on Liverpool for various reasons, most of them sentimental. But say if they got Bellingham and one other player, and like two midfielders, or be, not a Bellingham, but two quality midfielders, even if they missed out in Bellingham, it could make all the difference. Like even I, uh, I was joking about this last night that they're doing the ultimate rope a dope, you know, just luring Real Madrid into false security. And then bang. But, the first leg is, I would not be surprised if they put in a brilliant performance the first leg at Anfield and beat Rio. Because then, at that stage, there's a good chance uh, Jota will be back. Uh, possibility of Firmino and Diaz would be options. Van Dijk and Konati could be back as well. And the likes of Salah might think, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I might actually bother uh, trying in this game this is yeah, a big game I think, so uh, I would not be surprised to win it and, and I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they go out over two legs even if they won it anyway but I have a feeling that uh, that's all that would be uh, I could see them beating Real Madrid and then going out to a lesser team next week because everybody's beaten them Wolves hadn't scored three goals in any competition this season they should have scored five or six Yesterday, you know, Liverpool have, since the World Cup have, have conceded three to Brighton, Brentford, and Wolves. You know what has happened so quickly? Uh, just a very quick one. Leave it then. 
nobody can explain what's going on there. That's that's been honest. You know, people can say it's Pat Flinders' book, or it's a medical <laughs> medical department, or it's FC, FSG, or something. But there's never been uh, a collective <laughs> meltdown. Like there's nothing. Like there's no way. For example, just a final one. There's no way Jurgen Klopp thought Stefan Bischetic will be playing this season. He was only 18 in October, yeah. but now he's anchor midfield. So none of this was planned. Like he he said last summer, you know. He didn't want a midfielder, even though he tried to buy uh, Chumaini, was it? And he missed out on him. Then at the last minute, there was a panic and they took in Arthur Mello on on loan. Mm. So there's a lot of this that is completely unplanned. And Klopp looks lost. He doesn't know what to do. And the best thing he could do is uh, ring in sick for six months. (laughs) Take a break. Let Pep take the heat. Come Uh, back. Take a break. Pep Linder's book, (laughs) All a Fault for Liverpool. Liverpool, Well, Liverpool players are currently playing with kind of resentment as if they have been forced to all read Pep Linder's book. I don't know if you've read it. It is... Exhausting. I don't know. I mean, I don't blame them for, for being burned out by working with this guy if it's anything like his book. Um, I think Ram Riddle battered them, to be quite honest. I, I, the finals in Istanbul, so that does, you know, stir memories of a crap Liberal team somehow. Spirit of here 05, Cup. not getting uh, into Europe. But, but the, the, the interesting thing about Liverpool is, like, we've never seen Klopp rebuild a team. It'd be interesting to see if he can do it. And the problem he, is He's never people, been at a club long enough mm, to rebuild a team, though. The, that, that, that's key as well. Like, if he does see out this contract, he has the chance to. But, uh, the issue is off the field. Like I mean, the yeah. the geniuses who helped him build that team. You know, it's not he's not the singular genius behind everything. I think he's the figurehead, and they wouldn't have achieved anything without him. But he did so in lockstep with guys like Michael Edwards and Ian Graham and Julian Ward and these people in the recruitment side of things. They're all leaving or have gone. So whether Liverpool can continue their hits in the transfer market, Cody Gakpo and Darwin Nunez would suggest otherwise. Yeah, it's not been a good start for either. On the rugby side of things, there's plenty of good rugby writing, understandably. It's all on the back of the Six Nations games that took place on the opening Saturday. But I kind of want to take in a slightly beaten track, Gavin, to start yeah. in rugby, which is... We're simply too good to lead with this. Indeed. You know, Drive to Survive, mm. which is, you know, the same makers from Netflix, Sunday Business Post writing about it today, talking about the importance of the revenue to the unions. Uh, like, on the face of it, €120,000 per union sounds quite low. That's absolutely right. And sounds a remarkably good deal for the Netflix makers here to get so much access in yeah. one of the biggest tournaments in world sport. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was fairly amazed that they're managing to do this. Um, but it seems that Netflix went to the Six Nations. Six Nations naturally now have a have CVC, the venture capitalists involved. So they see, well, look what this has done for Formula One. Every sport seems to be getting involved. We need to get on board and grow the game in this way, which is a, an opinion not without merit. But it seems that they cut the deal with the Six Nations and the unions and teams were told, listen, you're just going to have to do this. It's part of the participation agreement. It's basically like one of the rules. So it is interesting. I know Murray Kensler was writing for us this week of the, there seems to have been a couple of uh, skirmishers or confrontations between the Netflix cameras poking poking a little bit too far uh, beyond, behind the curtain. Um, it seems like Johnny Sexton isn't really going to get involved nor Ty Furlong, which would be disappointing. I mean, if they get proper access, it will be class and it will be great for the sport and it's what the sport needs. I mean, we know, I mean, people, the same people giving out about this are those who sentimentalise living with the Lions from back in 97, which is, you know, which is a huge part of the Lions brand for want of a better word because God knows like the most recent Lions series and the, all the injuries the injuries the players have suffered from and the hangover into this season would suggest that this thing has no place anymore but stuff like living with the Lions is often cited as a reason actually no this is great because of this so I mean if they get great if they get proper access 
it'd be great. I mean, I would love to see the Six Nations covered from that kind of more human angle rather than drenched in, in phrases like IP and triple threat yeah. and, and, all, like, and all the necessary rugby jargon that, that comes with the sport nowadays. That is, that is, you know, it's on TV commentary now and everything. I really think maybe it's gone a little bit too far on that respect. So well, I would love the access, Gavin, if it was Warren Gatland Stripping the walls off yesterday. Like I, I would, I would pay. That'd be great. I would pay a lot of money if they just showed Warren Gatlin at halftime yesterday. I that, that's worth a Netflix subscription across a year alone. I hope they get it. Yeah, I'm not so sure, Kieran. I think we've got to a point where it's very different to '97, where guys are coming out of the amateur era, and the Lions was genuinely a fun few weeks away, aside from the rugby games, and therefore you got great access and good fun behind the scenes. Yeah, these guys are so stage managed now. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well. Um uh, I was talking to Ross Whittaker a while ago, but as uh, the documentary maker, and R- Ross would have made um, a program for RT that was shown over Christmas about uh, the, the Ireland's Test series win over New Zealand. And uh, you know, he was just talking. You know, he interviewed a lot of the players and the, the management for that thing. But uh, he, you know, he was talking to them about. You know, he he, he got the win from being. A, he, he did the interviews around the time of the, of the November series. And he could win that, you know, there was an unease in the camp about what was coming from Netflix. That, you know, the, the memos were, or the emails were coming in from Netflix about the kind of access they expected. And it's that kind of access that Ireland have never given, you know, in, in the professional era anyway. And you see now, like the guys that press, press, uh, when they, their press dealings, whether it's with Leinster and Munster or, or with Ireland, and they're so controlled and they're so in message and they're so... Uh, they're so similar to each other in what they say because they have been stage managed from a young age, you know, that even the likes of uh, it's not, even though they haven't left the scene that long ago, the likes of, say, Paul O'Connell and Donegal Callaghan, they had played a bit of All-Ireland League. You know, they were they had come not in. They weren't part of the amateur era, but they were kind of semi pro semi amateur. And even the guys before that then were completely amateur and they, you know, they had jobs, you know, they they weren't media trained. And, but even though this may be open, I think their instinct now is to be guarded, to act like there's cameras on you anyway. And I think this will. I have a feeling um, like Netflix might have made an agreement. OK, we're in the dressing room at halftime and before the games and after the games. I wouldn't be surprised if they'd gone to the Wales dressing room at halftime yesterday and they were told by Warren Gatlin, no way you're getting in here. <laughs> you know, because, you know, things are a bit ropey. It's my first game and we're getting our arses kicked uh, handed to us. So uh, it'll, it, it will be interesting because, uh, to see how it pans out. They were, uh, Netflix were at Ireland's training camp in the Algarve and the Algarve and they interviewed a lot of players there. And there were a couple, you know, likes of Peter O'Mahony and Keith Earls, you know, who are more old school in a way that in the way that they talk and they're you know Keith Earl's book with Tommy Conlon was talking about earlier Keith Earl's yeah. book is fabulously honest I would like this is going to sound like a bit of a contradiction as a viewer I hope they get great access because I would love to see it there's a voyeuristic part of me that would love to see it I would also I would have a lot of sympathy for a player who doesn't want the cameras there because when you say they act like there's cameras on them all the time at that level there are cameras on them all the time unfortunately and for, a, for any sports person to want like the idea that the dressing room is sacrosanct is actually, I think, a worthy idea. I think players, because they're human, they should have some kind of space where they can just be themselves and not worry about. So what happened when cameras were in Glasgow? Sorry, say that again. 
we saw what happened when there were cameras in the dressing room in Glasgow after oh the yeah World yeah World yeah World. but no but I just think that there's so much pressure on players at that level certainly uh, that I think uh, I can I'd, I wouldn't blame them for feeling unease that okay this was the one this was the one part of our professional lives where we felt we were kind of safe from uh, safe from the prying eyes and the judging eyes of the public so yeah. I can understand why the tension is there and in, in terms of, of access like it's a, it's, it's a funny thing but with the, with the because of the, the refs are mic'd up sometimes they pick up stuff from players and that can quickly go viral like mm. uh, you know the All Black series last week when or last year when Peter Manny's line of you're, you're just a shit Richie McCall <laughs> which which quickly went viral but I know for a fact in some, in some instances players have been a bit embarrassed that things are being called you know what they're saying in the field is in the heat of the moment they don't want it for public consumption but there are uh, as things stand that sometimes does happen you know so and look, I can understand totally where players are coming from too. We had Joe Canning on the show the week before last. He's making the point about the fact that his comments about Henry Shefflin ahead of the all Ireland final in 2012. He thought maybe this would make headlines, but there's no way my teammates are going to view this as this was an inspiration for Kilkenny to beat us. And he said after that he was incredibly careful with all of his media dealings in the 10 years or so that were left to his career mm. after that. Mm. So from a player's point of view, they probably don't want to get picked up saying something... Um, I guess in one of those more private moments that maybe is picked up by a microphone or by a camera from a film crew that are there that could potentially be used as motivation by a yeah. team next year sorry, for, uh, sorry this is tangential yeah, for any of, uh, the te- of Joe Canning's teammates who are blaming him for that All-Ireland because he made comments about Henry Shefflin would want to look at themselves like, he would I like what garbage that I think, is I think Joe Canning was pretty important uh, for Galway throughout his career <laughs> um, for it to be blamed but see I can see where he's coming from though they, he got the feeling that they were holding the fact that inspiration was given to Kilkenny against him for speaking in the media it's almost like yeah, I know. You know, if Joe hadn't talked maybe it would have been different maybe that's a culture within that sport and maybe yeah. it's not true of all of them but I think there is that feeling of go out and tell the media as little as you possibly can when you end up at these events mm. and therefore this is the possibility where you get a bit of a glimpse behind the curtain where guys mm. are being you know a little bit more them as opposed to being uh, in a media thing where a lot of these rugby players particularly do so many corporate events and do so many advertised events and they know exactly what the message is we don't look past Wales the World Cup is the only thing we're thinking about well, in the back of their mind they're probably half thinking you know what actually I, I do care about what happens yeah, but it's, fu- it's funny just some sports are just at such a different attitude to access as well like, like uh, Thomas Hauser the boxing writer he would spend a lot of time in dressing rooms before and after fights with fighters he was a book out uh, recently about uh, is that because fighters need to sell themselves <coughs> up here in, in it could way. be like an, a team is different you know uh, you know maybe individual sports are different uh, because um yeah, you like you look at the GA and there were there were a few back in the day, like the goal, the famous Galway one, a uh, year till Sunday, Westmeath went under party. There was some good stuff, but it was more guarded. Mm. Uh, Cross McGlenn did one, but a lot of teams have been approached and turned down things, and like Armagh did one. A lot of people don't know this in two thousand and three. Uh, Armagh were followed by for a year uh, by a documentary crew, but they only uh, did so in the proviso. They would only allow it to be shown if they won the All Ireland, and they lost the final, so nobody's ever seen it. What a what a waste oh. of a year for the yeah, film crew. Yeah, that should be dug up. There's definitely I mean, that's Dublin did one under Paul Carfrey as well, yeah. didn't they? Dublin did one. Yeah, this is yeah. up there with the David Connolly files. Well, we're ever going to see these. I presume you're both oh, yes. that David has all the footage <laughs> from Saipan. What? Yeah. So he was going around. He was basically videoing quite a bit of what happened in Saipan. 
They're Are you in, serious? Yeah, I didn't yeah, know this I think at it's all. The actual meeting? Uh, I don't think he has the actual yeah. meeting, but he has a lot of the behind the scenes and the tension around. And what's he, what's well. he going to do to it? Uh, I think he should be is selling gonna, them to a distributor. Let's do us all a national favor and bury them, and let's not restart this debate all over again. Uh, there's also that possibibility too. But I think the tapes are sitting in. I think he was saying they're in his parents' basement. But basically, he was going around with a fairly primitive camcorder at the time. The whole idea was, I'm going to have loads of memories of a fantastic trip to the World Cup, and then. S hits the fan in Saipan and he is quite he could get a video. fortune for those he really could I, I oh look, personally I hope it's released I grimaced at the idea of the 20th anniversary and the upcoming 21st anniversary and all the talk around Saipan and being reopened again but I actually think watching those tapes may well be interesting yeah. in and of themselves We're, time is up against us but just a very quick one Gavin I wanted to touch on because there's a lot about Harry Kane in the paper say it's dominated the Man City versus Spurs oh. um, preview material and Rob Draper the aforementioned has got Harry Kane potentially Byron being a route for him uh, which is on page 62 of the mail uh, Tom Allen is also writing in the Sunday independent today Kane at the crossroads is the title he's come up with Harry Kane is on the verge of two very important records the 200 Premier League goal which would put him in a club with Rooney and Shearer as the only three players who've done so and he's about to go past Jimmy Greaves let the argument continue about two goals Jimmy Greaves scored in the charity shield which is not counted by Spurs but Mm. he's on the verge of breaking that record whether it's one more goal or three more goals that he gets so Harry Kane will have achieved everything he really could with Spurs from an individual record point of view but his medal collection is still bare are we getting to the point now as Harry Kane reaches 30 where maybe he has to look abroad when Man City is no longer an option? Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I don't know why Manchester United wouldn't be an option in all things considered. Robin maybe Van Persie Mark II. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Vaid Valkhorst I don't think is the long-term solution there, should we say. Maybe they'll go for Osman or someone else. Um, are you saying that he should go? I think the papers are making the point that he should at least consider a move away from Tottenham Hotspur if he wants to win trophies. Yeah, I, I mean, I would if he wants to win trophies, definitely. And Bayern would be a, Bayern would be a great move in the sense that he would be guaranteed at least a Bundesliga tr- uh, trophy once a year, uh, and he would be a serious addition to that team. Uh, but it sounds like maybe the, it sounds like maybe he's going to stay at Spurs. The, the the latest the murmurings a couple of weeks ago were that he was open to extending his contract. Um, so I just it, I guess it comes down to what to what motivates him. Does going to Bayern Munich and winning Bundesliga and maybe the European Cup there will that mean a whole lot more than, you know, basically becoming the the best Premier League player ever? But I mean, if he becomes the top sco- scorer, I think that would definitely be a legacy into which uh, for which he would contend. Um, and I'm not kind of, I think maybe that the latter maybe motivates him more than winning trophies. Winning trophies at Spurs, I think, would be the ultimate motivation as to whether that's going to happen it's hard to know. Um, well, as Kieran just outlined, you've got two or three super clubs in the Premier League. Newcastle now are likely to spend fairly freely, particularly if they get into the Champions League, because the revenue will be coming in where financial fair play is no longer an issue for their Saudi Arabian owners. It's difficult to see Spurs win a trophy in the short to medium term. Nah, no, Harry Kane is. only has the short to medium term left. Yeah, 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 I suppose. Yeah, if he wants trophies, definitely. I mean, Bayern will be a very interesting one rather than, you know, and it maybe will be more palatable than. Now going to yeah, in uh, in Tom Allnut's piece in the in the Sunday Times, as well, it's interesting. It mentions um, the fact that Kane. I've always thought this as well that he sees the season Leicester won the title as as Spurs' great lost opportunity. And I don't know if you remember the game against Chelsea when the Spurs just went compl- into complete meltdown at the end, and you know there was malaise and everything. Uh, but, you know, that was the case because when you go through that Spurs team, uh, man for man, they had so much quality. You know, they, they had a serious team that time. Um, but uh, uh, there's a line in, in this as well that he has 16 league goals this season. 
Erling Haaland is 25. If he had gone to City that time, he would have 25 this season. If he had that kind of service, like it's, he's a City team that's creating very little and he's still got 16 uh, at the halfway point of the season. Like it's a serious return. In a year where his two mates from last season, Sun Min Jong yeah. has not been playing as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. was out for yeah, no, it's, and, and it, like, it, it mentions as well his response to the World Cup, you know, the, the missing the penalty, how well he's done since the World Cup. Like he didn't, he didn't, like he didn't, he doesn't seem to have a World Cup hangover. Um, uh, I remember talking to David Ford a few years ago, and David Ford was a uh, was a Millwall when he was sent there on loan. And no, and his season was you know his his career was at a crossroads. Like Spurs weren't convinced by him at all, and they sent him out in a few different loan spells. And uh, Mill, Millwall was the only loan spell that really worked for him. But David told me that he used to be begging David to come back in the afternoon. He said nobody else in Millwall was doing it, that he worked so hard in his finishing and he did, he did endless hours of shooting practice on his own and it paid off. Like he, he does seem like a strong character. I would like him to win medals. Uh, Bayern are interesting because it's never bothered them to buy th- attacking players in their 30s. Mm. They do it all the time. So he would win medals there because they always win the Bundesliga. Liga. Uh, but I have a feeling he could be a United, you know, like as, as, as Gav says, Veghorst is very much a short term issue. They're so dependent on Rashford. They do need, to, you know, a proper, a proper centre forward. Mm. Harry Kane potentially put Manchester even on to another level if they were to bring him in as well. Lads, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for joining me, Kieran Cunningham and Gavin Cooney. If you missed any of the Sunday papers today, you can uh, rewatch it on our social media channels, clicking our Off the Ball YouTube, or check out the Sunday papers in the Off the Ball Daily section on our podcast. We'll be back, of course, next Sunday. OTB Sports Rugby. Everyone in the world thinks Ireland should win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you pick the combined side, who'd get in from Wales? Jeez, I don't, not, no one, I don't think. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now.